there were further steps that could be done which would have the ability of defeating a family provision claim. If we had transferred assets out of the estate into trusts, then there would be no, no assets left for a family provision claim to be made. Establishing a, a debt facility owed to a related trust. So we might often call it a gift and loan back. We call a secured debt strategy, whereby the assets are still owned by the estate, but they're fully encumbered to a related trust. So there are steps that she could have taken if she wanted to, in order to protect against a family provision claim. Uh, it won't stop a claim being made, but when you're looking at an assessment, for example, of the assets and liabilities of the estate, it may be that the assets equal the liabilities and therefore any provision can't be made out of the estate. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to episode 255 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. What is a family provision claim about? Who has a right to claim and how do you prevent such a claim? These are just some of the questions Paul McEnross of Cleary Hall in Brisbane will discuss with you in this episode. To demonstrate the issue, Paul will discuss the Marcella case. And yes, we covered the Marcella case already in the last episode, but only with respect to Helen's SMSF. In this episode, we will cover Ricardo's family provision claim. Just to rejig your memory, Ricardo Marcella and Helen Swanson married in 1984. Helen brought two children into the marriage, Caroline and Charles, 12 and 14 at the time, whose father had died in a motorcycle accident a few years earlier. When Helen died in April 2016, she left a will with Ricardo as the executor of her estate. Here's Paul McEnross with what happened next. Yeah, so in relation to the family provision claim, it's always a good starting point uh, when talking to any client is to work out, well, what's the asset pool that we're going to fight over? Because unfortunately, with all all uh, legal disputes, you know, they're not cheap. So we need to make sure that the asset pool in and of itself is something that is worthy of pursuing uh, because mm. ultimately court will only step in. It's It's not a matter of the court saying, well, You know, for example, there's three siblings, you should get an equal share. You know, the court doesn't look at that. They look at more about what are the needs of the estate and whether the person who was either left out or didn't receive what they thought was a fair share, well, are they in need of further provision from the estate and whether that should be made? The asset pool might or might not include the super from the SMSF. It depends on what the new independent trustees decided. If they paid it out directly to the sister dependents, then the asset pool wouldn't include the super. If the trustees decided to put it into the estate, then the asset pool would include the super. Yeah, that's right. So again, it's it probably is a little unknown at this time what that would look like because obviously that decision hadn't been made. But yeah, you're right, that would be a further entitlement to the estate if, if that was the decision of the new trustees. So Helen, at her death, had a house worth about $1.5 million and a unit worth $550,000. And there was debt across those assets of 
just under half a million dollars. So the net estate, you know, we're talking about one and a half million dollars. But it wasn't it wasn't entirely about you know a monetary figure as to how much Rick was going to get or not get. One of the rules of or the uh, I guess bequests under the will was that Rick was to move into the unit. So they lived in the house and Helen said, well, I'm going to give Rick a life interest in the unit. So that came as a fairly big shock, I think, to Rick when he you know, was told about it under the will that he would have to move out of the house that he's lived in for you know, many years and move into the unit which had been rented to that time and that he would effectively receive a life interest in that unit only and he, he couldn't live in the house anymore. Uh, the estate was going to pay for the mortgage and upgrades and utilities and, and the like, and they were going to invest $100,000 to cover those costs going forward. But then the balance of the estate would be split equally amongst the two children, so uh, Martin and, uh, sorry. Charles and Caroline. Charles and Caroline, that's right. So that basically meant that Rick had nothing to live on, assuming that Rick would also already have been at retirement age. It basically meant that Rick had to go back to to work. Correct. That was obviously a fairly big cause for concern for him. And in the will, I said earlier that there was talk of, you know, that Rick had assets to support himself from his earlier business activities. Well, at the time of the court case, that was proven to not be the case. So Rick was... Yeah, looking down the barrel of having a life interest in a unit with, you know, an inability to to live, you know, without potentially going going back to, you know, work or doing something uh, to support himself. So that's obviously why he brought the family provision claim to court. So generally what uh, we talk about with our clients is when we're looking at estates is, well, you know, what are the assets of an estate? And the assets of an estate are often confused by many people because we talk so loosely about, you know, trusts being, you know, owned by us when, when in theory they're not. So when we talk to our clients, we, we, make, we try to make sure that they understand it's just assets that they own in their own names. So if you own an asset as the sole owner or a tenant in common, as distinct from a joint tenant, well, that will be a part of the property that goes into your estate. You know, it could be shares or units in a, in a trust that you own in your own name, cash and other assets, cars, those sorts of things. Uh, now, if you own property as joint tenants, and uh, I would say that most, most hus- a husband and wife or partner situation around the country own their home as joint tenants, you know, a common a misunderstanding, and it's not really an issue, is that that asset doesn't form part of your estate and doesn't, unless you're the sole surviving joint tenant. But if you're the first to die, that asset automatically goes to your spouse without ever going through your will. And that's that's a good thing, frankly, for, for most people, because most people may only own those jointly owned assets. So oftentimes, not much has to happen on the death of the first person to go. And most of those jointly owned assets automatically go to the survivor. And when a couple has children, then all is well because whoever dies first, it goes to the other one. And then when the second parent dies, it just all goes to the children. So it doesn't really matter. But when the joint tenants don't have children, 
then it can make a massive difference who dies first. Let's say it's Peter and Paul. And if Paul dies first and hence joint tenancy goes to Peter and then Peter leaves everything to his family, then Paul's family sees nothing of this jointly held asset. Whereas if Peter dies first and it goes to Paul and then Paul leaves everything to his family, then Peter's family sees nothing. So when there are no children, I think, it, yeah, this joint tenancy can be a minefield. It can. Um, and often they're difficult discussions, aren't they, where... Oftentimes, people don't want to think about that scenario where their partner might either one remarry or two die without, you know, without a, a partner again, or they might want them to split the assets amongst both families, but that may not happen. So there are mechanisms you can you can put in place. You can obviously sever the tenancy of assets and pass. If in your scenario, Peter were to die. His half interest in the home might go to a testamentary trust that Paul controls until he dies and then control goes back to Peter's family. That's a mechanism. Now, it gets messy when you're talking about the, you know, the family home and main residence exemptions and, and things like that. But there are mechanisms by which we can put in place steps to control the flow of that asset beyond the death of the survivor so that there is that equal and fair distribution amongst the two families. But yeah, that that is where it gets a little more complex and you need to have some discussions around, well, you know, understand that you think right now that uh, your partner will, you know, give the assets equally amongst the two families. Well, that may change after they die. Are these things that you, are there steps that you want to put in place to to control that or do you leave it up to trust? And that's for, I guess, the individual client to consider. So in terms of what is and isn't part of a person's estate, um, as I alluded to, you know, if you, if you are a beneficiary of a discretionary trust, well, that, that doesn't form part of your estate and therefore you can't give away those assets. Equally, assets owned by a company are not something you can give away in your estate. And it's common to hear clients talk about their business and, oh, I'm going to give the business to such and such and... You need to get a little bit more into the detail Just if there. You can talk about the shares. Correct, and you know, is it is it in a company? Is it a trust? Is it a unit trust? Who owns? You know, who actually owns that business? And it's not as simple as writing a will, where you know you say in your will, "I give the business to you know this person." Um, it and th- that that may be completely ineffective, and that and that is obviously one of the difficulties with preparing a will without proper advice is that what you might think is is an effective gift under your will won't actually occur and some adverse consequences from what the client wants to happen could unfold. There are some extra provisions in terms of what is in an estate of a person in New South Wales. So New South Wales have provisions called the notional estate provisions. What those provisions are designed to do is to say that even though particular assets are not technically within a person's estate. If you meet these certain rules, we're going to treat those assets as if they're part of your notional estate and they can then be divided up in a family provision application. And some of those assets will include trust assets. For example, there is a case and the legislation even outlines this that If I have power of distribution of assets, I might be the sole trustee and the the sole appointer. 
I would trust if I have the power to distribute the assets on the day before I die, then the assets of that trust can form part of my notional estate and you know, divide it up in a, in a family provision claim. What the, I guess the bulk of the provisions are also designed to do is to uh, draw back in assets you might have transferred out of your estate. So if you've done what they call a relevant property transaction, whereby you've transferred an asset from your estate for you know, not market value consideration, so you've gifted it away, and it's within a prescribed time, which is three years if the transaction is designed with the intention of limiting the provision for a person under your estate, then that transaction can be unwound. So if I've given away my house and it's within three years and the reason I did it was so that a child I had that I don't speak to anymore can't get any assets from my estate because I've already given them away. Well, if that's within three years of the date of my death, then that will be a relevant property transaction and that asset could form part of my notional estate. So I know that in 2015, there was a case uh, which brought in trust assets to a notional estate and there was a lot of uproar at the time. I think we've kind of got to the point where we accept that that is the law, whether we, no matter what you think of it, that if you are the sole controller of a trust, then in a family provision claim, that asset may be considered part of your notional estate. So there are mechanisms you can do to stop that. Obviously, having a joint controller, for example, whether it be trustee and a pointer, uh, so that you're not the sole person who makes those decisions. Uh, now, obviously, giving away that power, so giving away the power to be the sole person in charge, well, that would probably be a relevant property transaction. So you need to make sure that you give away that power at least three years before your death, which you know we can't always time, unfortunately. But there are mechanisms provided you understand that, well, there is that three-year time frame. So that kind of broadens what an estate is for those persons living in New South Wales with assets there. So within all states, there is the ability to make what's called a family provision application. And it's designed to protect a, a disaffected eligible person where the deceased had a, a moral duty to provide for them. So where did Rick Marcella was in Victoria. Each state has different elements of who may make a claim or who's an eligible person to make a claim. So the family provision legislation is a state is state law. Correct. Yeah, it's it's in uh, certainly in Queensland it's the Succession Act. I think New South Wales call it the Succession Act as well. Other states may have different names, but yeah, it is a, a state-based a Supreme Court application. Within all states, your spouse, de facto child or dependent is going to have the ability to make a claim. And then other states do broaden that a little. So New South Wales includes former spouses. Victoria, the same, spouse of a child, member of a household, and WA, again, has, has former spouse. Now, telling people that a former spouse may make a family provision claim usually gets the uh, hair standing up on clients' necks. Yes, they may be an eligible person, but that doesn't mean that they would have a successful application. You know, it's, it's, a, lot, it's a lot bigger uh, mountain to get over, but the it, there is the ability there for that person to be an eligible person to make a claim. 
the other person that probably gets a client's hairs raised is spouse of a child. If a child's marriage is on the rocks and there's a possibility that that spouse could make a family provision claim, I can imagine that makes people also nervous. It does. Uh, that is only in Victoria. But yeah, you're right. It, it, I would say probably greater than 80% of the clients who come to see me in relation to our bloodline testamentary trusts come because they're concerned about their child's spouse. Uh, that, that, that is just a fact. They're concerned that their child is married or, or in a relationship to a person they either don't like or, you know, there's some animosity there. And they are concerned that if they die and assets go, you know, to their child, the spouse is going to take it in a divorce because they think all their children are going to get divorced. You know, that is anecdotally a significant portion of the clients who come to see me about our bloodline testamentary trusts. So, yes, in Victoria, for those people, spouse of a child would definitely make people nervous. Now, again, it's it's more than it just means they're eligible. doesn't mean they're going to get anything or they're actually entitled to anything. They have the ability to make a claim. So then the courts look at a, a whole range of, of factors to determine what someone might be entitled to under a will. They look at the na nature of the relationship between the deceased and the eligible person, obligation or responsibilities of the deceased to the eligible person, the size and nature of the estate, and that comes back to that, that first threshold question of, in any litigation, is it worth it? You know, is the, is the monetary value of this estate, if, if we're fighting over a $100,000 estate, it will not be worth it. The costs of, are unfortunately prohibitive in that scenario. If we're talking about million dollar, you know, $2 million in the estate, well, then that is, uh, you know, more likely going to be something worth challenging. The financial resources of the person. So the person making the claim, if they're a, you know, they have significant wealth of their own and they're challenging perhaps a moderately sized estate, well, that's a factor to consider as to whether or not a claim should be successful. Whether the eligible person has disabilities and whether that impacts on how much the estate should have left or the deceased should have left for them, their age, age of the eligible person, whether there was any contributions by the eligible person to the You know, to the deceased. So if, if you've maintained the deceased and you've assisted them by upgrading their house or whatever the scenario might be, well, if you've made contributions, you might, you might be entitled to some further contribution in return. Contribution. And the contribution only counts kind of things that are hands-on, like I, I renovated your house or I helped you out financially when you were down or does, no. does contribution also count emotionally? You know, I, I visited the deceased once a week and I was always there when they were sick. That counts as well? It does. And and that's, I would say that's probably the great, the greater proportion of claims made is where they, where they rely on a contribution. It's, well, I went and took mum, you know, to the shops every Thursday to get her groceries. And on the weekends, I took her to, you know, the club to, you know, socialize and, You know, it, it's pro that is probably the greater proportion than I gave mum money. But that is also harder to prove. I mean, of course, if you take mum to the shops, there might be outside witnesses. But if your justification is just I visited mum twice a week, that is a lot harder to 
proof. It is, but oral testimony by the eligible person is proof in itself if that proof is believable. So a court will look at that witness and see how they answer questions in the witness box. Were they truthful? You know, did the judge genuinely believe that they did that every week? So it's it's a matter of weight that gets placed on that person's testimony. Yes, corroborative evidence of someone from the nursing home saying, oh, yes, they're in every Thursday at 10 a.m. Well, yeah, that that's helpful. But I think that there's often a tendency to to disregard the the person who's making the claim as well, we you know we don't really believe them. Like, well, no, we assess their evidence. They give oral evidence of what they did for mum and the court will weigh up whether that has credibility or not. Do most people go to the court regarding family provision claims with a lawyer or do a lot of people come alone? I don't know what the stats would be. Because, of course, you only know the ones who engage yeah. a lawyer. Who, who engage a lawyer, that's right. To be honest, a, a lot of... And again, this is anecdotal from just from my experience. A lot of these claims would be settled before the, the doorsteps of a court. Often a claim, a notice of claim. So in each each state, they have different time frames. Queensland, I'll give you that because that's where I'm from. You have to put the executors on notice uh, within six months of the date of death. Uh, and you need to have brought an application within nine months of the date of death for further provision. Now, what happens in practice is you write your letter of notice to the executors and then you spend a few months negotiating some sort of arrangement which makes everyone happy to walk away with uh, some further provision. Or if that doesn't happen, then we end up having to go to court. So some further factors, this is probably coming back to that monetary contribution. So previous benefits paid, you know, did did mum provide, uh, and this happens a lot, did mum and dad give one child the deposit for their house? And that's why they've given it a further contribution to another beneficiary. So we often get that where a client will say, well, we gave our daughter Jane 300000 she bought her house, and we're going to give a similar gift to our son Billy in our will because he's not of the age that he is going to buy a house. And if we give Billy a, a gift so that he can buy his house, then we'll amend our will and take that provision out. Now, that can be taken into account as to why there is a, an unequal distribution in the will and oftentimes that may be to defend against a family provision claim. It may be, well, yeah, I got more, but you got given that deposit. So then some of the other factors, whether the eligible person was maintained or, you know, did they live with them? Did they have all their expenses paid by them, uh, by the deceased? Whether there are any liabilities of the deceased to, to maintain the person? The character and conduct of the eligible person, that's that's often one that um, clients are concerned with. I've had clients who have said to me that, well, we're not providing for my daughter because she stole money from us and from the business. And we consider that, you know, she's taken what she right. is owed and she's not getting any more. So that's an issue that would come up if that daughter made a family provision claim, but it would then be used, I guess, possibly by that the other child who might be the executor to defend against a claim saying, well, that's correct, but your conduct was so awful and that's why you didn't get any claim. Or 
we often uh, get clients who say, I have a child from a former relationship I haven't seen in 30 years. Well, that's evidence in, in why there may be no moral need to provide for that child because that child doesn't want anything to do with you. And coming out now and putting your hand out is not appropriate. Court may consider it not to be appropriate. And with most legislation, there is a catch-all that says any other matter that the court considers appropriate. So that, you know, can be any, any other matter not already considered previously, you know, the court may take into account. So there's some of the factors that a court will look at in whether they should make a different distribution of the estate. I said earlier that the object of the court is, is not to provide an equal split or, or, you know, they won't just say, well, there's three children, we'll split it equally. It's, it's a lot more nuanced than that. And from the Marcella case, there's a quote that's quite relevant to well, what the object of the court is in any family provision claim. And it says that the court's function is not to ensure a fair distribution of the testator's estate or to achieve equality amongst various claimants, but goes no further than making adequate provision for the proper maintenance and support of an applicant. So I think the last words there, that we don't do any more than providing adequate provision. So it's not about evening up the estate. It's saying, well, looking at the person who's making a claim and saying, did you get adequate provision for your maintenance and support? And that's why, you know, the wealth of that eligible person is a factor because if you're a multimillionaire, you, you may not need any further provision than what you received. So I think that's quite useful because a, a lot of clients who come to us for this sort of advice, they do expect, and probably rightly so, that their mum and dad might have distributed the estate equally. And when they find out that it didn't happen that way, they're, they're disgruntled. And I, I think that's fair but for a court to step in and, and change a person's will is a fairly drastic step and it needs to be more than just saying, well, we're going to make it all equal. It's saying, well, no, you, the court needs to be assured that you need more provision so that the provision you're receiving is adequate. Not great, just adequate. So I think that's quite instructive and, and that is a difficult conversation with some clients to get them to understand that, well, that's, that's what the object of the court will be. Oftentimes, people will say, can I, can I just put something in my will that says this is why they're not getting anything? And the answer is absolutely, you can put that in. It may not have the effect you intend, but yes, it can. Now, in Marcella's case, uh, there was a clause in the will, um, as I've said a couple of times, and it said, by agreement, and bearing in mind that the assets herein disposed were premarital assets acquired during my previous marriage, and my husband has monies of his own and business interests. And that was kind of an explanation as to, as to why the distribution was the way it was. Now, again, that was proven to not be the case, probably the second part about husband's monies of his own, but an attempt to mitigate against court action in that way wasn't effective in, in Marcella's case. So what happened in Marcella's case or the outcome on the estate fight was that, was that Rick was successful and he was given a flexible life interest in the house. So he was allowed to stay in the house rather than the unit, which is what he was given in the will. 
And what means flexible? Yeah, so what it meant was that he had the ability to downsize. You know, generally a life interest, if I get a life interest in a house, if I decide to move out of the house, oftentimes that might end my life interest, depending on the wording of the will. What the court said was, no, Rick will have the ability to downsize if he wants to go to supported living or a smaller house, and that he would effectively be able to invest the balance of any sale proceeds. So he had the house. If he sold it, then he would uh, set aside the balance. So if he then went into supported living, he'd put some money towards that, and then the balance would go into an account. He could live off the money, the money gained from those balance funds. And when he passed away, then the estate would get whatever whatever would be left mm. at that time. So But that means Rick won big time. He did. Because he got the house, which would have been the greatest asset. He did, but on his death, whatever, so if he downsized to a smaller house, the house is still technically part of the estate, that new house. And when Rick died, it went back into uh, the it went estate. back into the estate, and then was divided equally amongst the children. So that wouldn't have affected Rick so much because he doesn't have children of his own. So once correct. he passes away, it doesn't really matter to him who gets. And to be what. honest, that's probably what what would have happened had I'm reading between the lines. But you know, that's probably what should have happened in the first place. But I don't understand the motives, and but. I think that that makes sense. I think the court judgment was very sensible in that regard that, well, Rick should be able to stay in the house he's lived in for, for 20 okay. plus years. If he wants to downsize to a smaller place because he's he's getting older, he can do that. Um, the balance yeah. of the money then gets given to the kids ultimately. And I think yeah. that's a sensible option. And he would have lived in the house for 29 years. So yeah, for a it, it, large it was part a of his adult very life. Very significant, yeah, part of his adult life. He also did get a pecuniary legacy, so a, a money gift of $100,000 from the estate, um, which is just, yeah, straight-up gift from the estate, which he could obviously put towards his, you know, lifestyle and, and living. Mm. Yeah, that means the children didn't get much because I assume that the loan, I assume that was on the, on the unit as an investment property, so that means the house was debt-free. So it basically means there wasn't much there wasn't much else apart from the house. Ultimately it, it probably defers their gift from the estate until until Rick dies, you know. And, and look, that probably is what most families do. I think you said earlier, you know, mum and dad give everything they own to each other and then to the kids. You know, it is always different in a blended family situation as to when your children from your previous relationship might get their inheritance, so to speak. But I think the fact that they had been married for 29 years lended itself to a situation where, well, he should be entitled to at least live in the house and yeah. um, benefit from that. No, you're right. It's actually a fair point. It basically mirrored what would happen in a in a non-blended family where yep. everything first goes to the surviving spouse and then when the surviving spouse dies, then everything goes to the children. Yeah, that's right. I think it was a sensible judgment, pragmatic approach to providing adequate provision to, to Rick. And ultimately, the children will benefit. It's not like they're not going to benefit. It's not like Rick could give those assets away to someone else. They will ultimately benefit. It may not be the same dollar value because... Rick may have spent some of that money, but ultimately 
they will get the benefit when Rick passes. Yeah, if Rick now does the right thing and doesn't spend the money yeah. with both uh, hands. I think in terms of the, the balance funds, he didn't have the right to spend the capital, just the income. So okay. if he downsized, the capital would be protected in a way, but he could live off the income from. Oh, okay. So again, it, their, their capital was protected, but it was deferred effectively. The pitfalls that happened in this case, the first one I said they had no BDBN, no binding death benefit nomination. The second potential issue was that if the BDBN was still valid, was still in place, it would it would have been invalid. Yes. Then another pitfall that doesn't apply to this, but that you mentioned was thinking about what goes into the estate so that joint tenancy, for example, doesn't go into the estate. So an easy pitfall is thinking there's a lot more in the estate than there actually is. The estate might actually be empty and hence the will and. Kind of- uh- I guess Useless. another pitfall of, of that is if, if for example, you've got a discretionary trust that runs or owns owns real estate and you might appoint an executor who's not a beneficiary. Helen might have appointed Carolyn as the executor of her estate. Now, if she didn't appoint someone as a successor appointer of the trust, the trustee probably provides that the executor of her estate becomes the appointer. So in that scenario, help, uh, Carolyn, the daughter, would have taken over full control of the discretionary trust that owns real estate. And in that case, it would have been beyond any court application, leaving aside the notional estate in New South Wales. It would have left that asset out of the estate. Helen may have wanted her brother to benefit from that asset as well. Uh, he would have been left out unless Carolyn took the altruistic step of appointing her brother as a co-executor, which on the facts of this case probably wouldn't have happened. So by leaving that asset or not dealing with the control in that trust, that's a, that's a pitfall that you think your asset is going to be divided amongst your two children when in fact it actually is only held for the benefit of one child. Okay, yeah, fair point. So that's another pitfall. Then another pitfall is to not be specific. So, for example, to talk about the business and not to say share, so units when the business is sitting within a trust or a company. And then the the last big pitfall that you enlightened us very well on was basically to ignore the family provisions, yeah, to right. try to cut somebody out, but leaving all doors open for them to come back in based on contribution, based on disability, based on age or need. That's right. And look, there are steps that can be taken in order to ensure a client's in Helen's scenario. If she wanted to put in place her estate plan in that way, there were further steps that could be done which would have the ability of defeating a family provision claim, but those obviously weren't taken in her scenario. What could she have done to cut Rick out? Because I can imagine after 29 years of marriage, it would be very difficult to cut out your spouse. So when you look at the estate, there's a number of things you need to look at. One is, well, what are the assets of my estate? And we've gone through that. So trust assets are not part of the estate. So if we had have transferred assets, leaving aside tax for a moment, if we had have transferred assets out of the estate into trusts, then there would be no no assets left for a family provision claim to be made. Again, leaving aside New South Wales notional estate provisions. 
or if we did it three years outside. And leaving aside that that would have incurred stamp duty. Yep, leaving aside that. So exactly. oftentimes stamp duty and, and CGT are the, the significant factors there. So what we look at is establishing a, a debt facility owed to a related trust. So we might often call it a gift and loan back. We call a secured debt strategy, whereby the assets are still owned by the estate, but they're fully encumbered to a related trust. And what the courts, uh, all the way to the High Court in Barnes's case, has said is that any family provision claim has to take into account liabilities of the estate. So if there is a liability of the estate, being uh, uh, this debt facility that, I, that I've discussed, that family provision claim has to take that into account and can't disregard it. So there are steps that she could have taken if she wanted to in order to protect against a family provision claim. Uh, it won't stop a claim being made, but when you're looking at an assessment, for example, of the assets and liabilities of the estate, it may be that the assets equal the liabilities and therefore any provision can't be made out of the estate. Welcome back. So one way to protect your estate is to put a charge on the asset through a related trust, so in this case a mortgage on the family home and unit. The next step could then be a will contract and the final step could have been an option contract that would have given the trust the right to buy the house and unit and then offset the sales proceeds with the registered debt. This, of course, might have had stamp duty and CGT implications, but it would probably have protected the assets from a family provision claim. In the next episode, episode 256, John Saunders of the Pitwater Partnership will talk about retirement villages, what to look out for when you or your client consider buying a unit. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.